Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Business Black Belts podcast. I'm David Golding, and I have the pleasure of being here with Karen Feinstein from the Jewish Healthcare Foundation here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How are you, Karen? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm, it's such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Um, you know, you have had such a distinguished career um, and so much experience that I think listeners uh, can definitely will be able to relate to and, and uh, learn from. So a good place to start is probably just at the beginning of you know, who you are and, and how you got here. Well, how do I define myself? I <laughs> certainly, let me say mother and grandmother. Um, also, I like to think I'm a pragmatic activist. So, so what do I mean by that? I mean, I'm strategically, I'm very flexible. You know, I think life's a game of Scrabble. So I kind of know where the end point is, but I have no idea what moves I'm going to make along the way until I see what I'm going to do. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty flexible strategically. That said, I would say I'm a traditionalist. My kids joke that I haven't made a new friend since my third birthday, but that's not quite true. But people who were at my third birthday party are still my good friends. And <laughs> I live surrounded by family. All of my children live in walking distance. Five generations of our family have clustered in one neighborhood. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a traditionalist activist. <laughs> Um, also, you know, I'm a CEO. I, I like to think in some ways I'm a community leader, a mentor. Uh, I got my PhD from Brandeis University, dealing with some very esteemed economists, wrote my dissertation on labor economics, but I'd like to think I'm actually a doctor of societal healing. Um, and that's a lifelong fascination with social movements, social revolutions. I like to understand how societies become more just and caring and democratic. So I think those are the ways I, I would define myself. Oh, I love that. You said so much there. Um, the first thing that really piqued my interest is five generations together in within walking distance. Yes. How have you accomplished that? Because I think that is something that, uh, you know, when I've been to other countries and certainly there's other cultures um, that still really strive to do that, where that's very common. Whereas in ours, really, there's, I have no family within, you know, three hours. The closest family that I have is within three hours. So just can you talk, I mean, was that something, obviously it was probably intentional to some degree, but I'd love to know more about that. Well, I think it's somewhat uniquely Pittsburgh East Coast. Yeah. Northeast. Our neighborhoods have character defined by certain cultures that have lived there for generations. That's not unusual in Pittsburgh. We live in the house that belonged to my in-laws. That's also not the least bit unusual. Families keep houses, they pass them down. It's an urban neighborhood that stayed vital over generations, which is also somewhat unusual. People haven't fled to the suburbs. In fact, you can't buy a house right now. <laughs> um, the people in the suburbs are fleeing back. Um, it's a very vibrant urban neighborhood with uh, four universities and many, many community civic assets. 
Um, our museums um, are also here, our botanical garden, um, very major city parks. So, you know, in a way, why would our family live anywhere else? Yeah. The fact that we all have stayed together, I do think also is a bit of the magnetism of Pittsburgh. People identify intensely. There are stealer bars all over the world. Ex-Pittsburghers who may have been gone for a generation or two still say, I may be living in Bucharest or I may be living in Singapore or San Francisco, but I'm a Pittsburgher. Mm. That's amazing. Love it. Um, I aspire. Yeah. I always say I, I uh, want my kids. I actually never want them to move out, but uh, my, my wife disagrees with me. So um, I'll, I'll just try to get them to live close to me like you've done. Uh, so, you know, in uh, this is Women's History Month, and I'm so excited that we were able to get a woman CEO on during Women's History Month. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you have had to overcome to become a, uh, a CEO? Well, <laughs> I would say certainly my generation, it was a lot harder then. Um, I tend to be very outspoken and direct and somewhat assertive. And in Boston, we lived in Boston for 16 years, although I'm, I'm a Pittsburgher. Um, that wasn't that extraordinary. I came back to an intensely corporate culture here in my hometown, and it was. However, that said, when men would tease me, you know, they'd say, um, do you get in trouble because you're so direct and you say what you're thinking? And I always say, when you stop rewarding me, when you guys stop rewarding me, um, maybe I'll change, which of course I won't. But the interesting thing is I often, when I came back, I was the first woman on the Boy Scout board, the first woman on the Allegheny Conference uh, for Community Development. I, I wound up playing the first woman role because actually I think even though men may criticize it, they're more comfortable with the fact that you can, women don't have to be silenced. They don't have to be scenery. Um, people are more comfortable when you're speaking up and saying what's on your mind and you're direct. So yeah, I think that was a challenge. Also, which would be humorous when they sold the Jewish hospital here, Montefiore, and they set up a foundation, even though I had no healthcare background, they wanted me to run this foundation. But this is Pittsburgh, as I described it to you. So a lot of the people on the board had pushed my baby buggy. They'd been at my early birthdays. There was even someone on our board had gone to kindergarten with me. So it was very funny. The older generation, my parents' friends, had to say occasionally, you have to stop calling me Uncle Alvin or Uncle Dick. You have to, you know, you're CEO now, um, not a young girl. So yeah, there was a lot of adjustment, but don't forget, it also worked both ways. And I feel bad for some of the young women now who are in leadership roles. I was definitely mentored, protected. There was a lot of chivalry. So the people that ran our giant corporations here, they were very protective. Um, you know, I can whine about some of the ways in which I, I felt diminished a little bit or less was expected of me. But I can also tell you people who would loan their corporate jets, um, uh, the head of one of our largest law firms told one of their 
chief clients that if he didn't behave appropriately toward me, the law firm would fire them. I mean, you know, you don't get that anymore. Yeah. So I say uh, there were disadvantages, but there were advantages. And uh, if I had to add it all up, I miss the fact now my daughter-in-law runs the Allegheny Conference on Community Development, where I was the first woman. And it's the corporate leadership of the community. And the interesting thing is people aren't nearly as chivalrous <laughs> anymore. I, I think she's missing something. Yeah, that is um, just like uh, some of the you know, living close to your your family. Um, you know, chivalry is, is something that I think we as a society miss. Um, and uh, you know, there's there's a place uh, for empowering women, but then also as men looking out for them too. Yes, I mean, none of us appreciated the sexual advances, which are now pretty much. Yep. Uh, forbidden. So I don't. I think we missed that not at all. But there was a leader here in finance. Um, I was teaching at Carnegie Mellon when I came back, and I did a paper on the economic future of Pittsburgh after the demise of Big Steel. And I'm giving this serious paper to a lot of leaders at our downtown uh, dining club, and I'm introduced as a little lady whose brains are as good as my legs. Now, in Boston, you would have been arrested, right? <laughs> the EOC would have swooped in. And so what can I tell you? People said, that is so awful, that's so awful, yes. But the person who introduced me became a wonderful friend and even took me to lunch at their executive dining room once when I was about to make a career move and said, don't do it. It is the wrong move. This is what you should be thinking about. Uh, and he was right. So what can I tell you? You know, it, it worked both ways. Times have changed. What we don't miss uh, are the Harvey Weinstein's. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think your perspective, I love how you framed it. And I think it's so important for everyone um, to see, you know, that, that life is good and bad, right? There's always going to be pluses and minuses. Um, do you think that that perspective uh, or how has that benefited you? Um, you know, throughout your career? Well, so funny. My mom used to say the secret to life was look good, work hard, and please your boss. Um, and I do think that my generation, there was maybe more influence as a woman that, you know, you also had to look the role. I mean, I look at Nancy Pelosi in her stiletto heels and her impeccable um, professional wardrobe. Ah, but I got to say, it's part of her essence. Yeah. Um, it's part of her presence. And those old timey values, my mother, once I gave a talk at the White House, and in the Roosevelt Room, um, this was George W. Bush, he, he, he had assembled everybody who's anybody. And I'm very proud. And the first thing my mother asked is, what did you wear? Um, now, I would never say that to a daughter or daughter-in-law. However, you know, some of those values, there are truths there. And looking good and being courteous and having manners. I've often said to people, I get away with being as direct as I am because I try to never be rude. Mm -hmm. you know, I try not to be abrasive and rude. Um, I, I think courtesy still goes a long way. Yeah. 
it's wonderful. Um, those are all things that I think we can all learn from and, and um, you know, important reminders, I think, for, uh, for a lot of people of the importance of, of uh, you know, manners and, and uh, you know, being kind, right, and courteous yeah. and thinking of others. Uh, I'm glad you said that. Um, let's talk about, you know, I know something that's very close to your heart is mentorship. And, um, you know, just like you talked about, people coming alongside you and, and um, you know, steering you early on in, in your career. Um, you know, what is it that, uh, you know, you as a leader and as a mentor try to hone in on when you're, when you're mentoring someone um, and preparing them for leadership? Well, first of all, I, I encourage them to be aspirational. One of, you know, all of us look back, whatever they say, you look back on your deathbed, you think this, you think that. I think almost every one of us, no matter what we've achieved, wish we were a little more aspirational and wish that that confidence to, to shoot high had come earlier. I also, when it's women, again, I say, please don't be scenery. Don't come up after a meeting, which happens to me all the time. Women will come up and say, I really wanted to say that. Um, say it. <laughs> the other thing I tell people is the world is political. The world is about policy. Um, so much of what we do and what we can do with life and what we can achieve depends on policy that exists or policy change, better policies, new policies, or getting rid of bad policies. To not be part of political life, I don't mean sit at home and yell at the TV. That is not what I have in mind. I think we all have to get out and work actively for candidates that we think will advance society. Um, no one will pay attention to you if you write a thesis. This is not dissertation time. It's not term paper time. They will help you, people who are in a position to make legislation and make policy, they will help you because they know you and they know that you're engaged. And it is funny, I, I think my politics are pretty clear to most people in Pennsylvania and even someone on the national scene. I work very well across the aisle. I've supported people in both parties. People appreciate that you're active, that you care enough to get engaged. And sometimes the best candidate is one party or another. It doesn't matter. So I do encourage young people, I say, look, I, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, I don't care if you're a medical doctor or a banker um, or a certified nurse practitioner, I don't care. Policy is affecting everything you do. So I, I would say those are some of the things I encourage people to think about. The other is, and I hate this, this is sort of a new meme. Um, where did the imposter syndrome come from? Um, <laughs> At times, we all lack confidence in certain areas. You cannot be deeply informed about every area. But you can always ask questions and not feel like an imposter. You're asking an honest question. Sometimes the best questions come from people who aren't well informed about a certain subject matter. So I am meeting a number of women and when you're doing formal mentorships, and they ask me about the imposter syndrome. And I sort of don't like it. I say, look, if I'm in the room, whatever the room is, 
if I'm in the room or the position or I've been given authority, I'm there for a reason. I, I earned it some way or another, even if it's just my demographics. They want to hear from my demographic. So speak up, be present. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, that really goes well with what you started off saying, be aspirational, right? I talk a lot with my kids and people that I mentor, you know, don't be afraid to be bold, right? You can be bold and, um, and also though, do it with gentleness and kindness. Um, and I, I love the word aspirational. Uh, so speaking of aspirational, you know, as the CEO of, uh, the Jewish healthcare foundation, you know, what are you currently working on? I mean, what's, what's, uh, in your focus right now? Well, I, I do take my own advice. I'm trying to get legislation to create a national patient safety board that would be modeled loosely on the national transportation safety board. The reason being that aviation, rail travel, even um, highway travel has seen dramatic improvements in safety over the last three decades. Healthcare is stagnant. We unfortunately are rife with harm. Um, and, and the, the data are so underreported, but probably a quarter of a million people die every year from preventable medical error in our country. I don't know how you live with that data. A quarter of a million people dying from something, we'd probably go to war. Um, so what is troubling to me is that other industries that are complex and high risk have a national home. They have a federal home. There's a place where people think about safety in that industry all the time. Healthcare right now, that responsibility is diffused. It's divided among, depends on how you count it, anywhere from eight to over 12 different agencies have a piece of patient safety, and we're incredibly unsafe. We need a home, one place that's bipartisan, that's independent. That's what we love about the NTSB, that's a think tank that does nothing but study the problem and come up with solutions to our major harms. So I think that's aspirational enough. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's very aspirational. And you know, when we were preparing for this, that's not something that came up and, and that is so exciting. It's certainly something that's close to my heart. Um, you know, my son was uh, injured uh, in a medical procedure as a young boy um, and so safety is something that, I mean, we've experienced firsthand, uh, you know, and it's, it's not intentional, right? Um, this doctor was doing the best that they could, but certainly I think if there were more controls in place, more oversight, um, probably more of a, uh, interest in, uh, safety, it, it could have been avoided. Uh, so how are you going about doing that? I mean, what are the steps and, and where are you in the process right now? Well, you're asking me about one of my favorite subjects. Um, we don't have to be where we are. You heard me say preventable medical error. Many of the errors are preventable. The interesting thing is, and I started working on this with a very charismatic CEO named Paul O'Neill, who at the time was the CEO of Alcoa, which was the safest corporation in the world and headquartered right up the street from where I was working then. And I looked at the dramatic gains that this very high risk industry, the making of aluminum, you know, big 
um, bolts of molten metal, you know, moving sheets of aluminum that could cut your head off, they're that sharp, around their factories. Um, and almost nobody around the world got injured. Um, so let's begin with the fact that these errors in healthcare, I believe they're preventable. But Paul had used what was available at the time. We started this in 98. And what he worked on is changing behavior at the front line. For him, manufacturing, for us, healthcare. We brought lean quality engineering to healthcare. The problem is, A, those techniques don't transfer that well. Give a lot of reasons why, but a manufacturing floor is not like a, a chaotic hospital floor. Um, but the other issue, which is an even bigger one, is other industries have made use of frontier technologies since 1998. We've come a long way. There are a lot of technologies that I'll often say, create a safer environment, not a better pilot. Mm. And you could think of autopilot on trains, automatic safety valves on the highway, airbags. All of those come from the National Transportation Safety Board and, and related partners. We need those solutions in healthcare. We have yet to apply the technologies that are available in other industries to healthcare and mostly because we gave safety over to the doctors. And I have great respect for medical education, <clears throat> have them doctors in our family, but they have almost no grounding in safety science, organizational behavior, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, advanced analytics, computer science. We could go down a long list. And what they're not doing is bringing experts, even just basic human factors engineers, into the discussions about how to make healthcare safer. So I think it's time, and it's time to look at what technology can do to enable safety and to work alongside our human workforce. Hmm. So um, there's so much uh, involved here that we could you know, talk for hours about it, I'm sure. Um, and maybe there's a, a reason to have a future podcast. We kind of check back in and, and dig into this particular topic more because um, obviously it's so critical. And, and you raise really a really interesting aspect of it, which is technology. And then also the, the culture of medicine, right? Of just, um, you know, questioning doctors um, and, you know, uh, impacting, you know, being able to impact the process. Uh, so I guess the, you know, one thing I, I'd like to touch on just in the limited time that we have is when you're doing something that aspirational, um, it, there's an analogy of, you know, eating the elephant. Where do you start? How do you know where to start in eating the elephant, so to speak? Well, first of all, you don't do more of what hasn't worked. I'm not a believer that a heavier dose of a medication that didn't work is going to make you healthier. I'm not buying that. Um, so I think we have to look at what we don't have. And that's why I've been very interested, not only in a national patient safety board, but what I would love to set up are regional clusters who look at autonomous technologies for patient safety. <clears throat> and I begin at home because we have Carnegie Mellon University here, University of Pittsburgh, UPMC Health Center. We have a lot of assets right in our own backyard. We could be a leader in autonomous patient safety technology. 
but I could see some regional clusters. I'd start there. I, I do believe strongly that right now with our worker shortage and the escalation of medical harm during the pandemic, which sadly has, has just been a tragedy, we have to do something bold. And I think the bold thing is to, it's, it's delayed, but better late than never bring technology in. It's that create a better airplane. And I could give you a lot of examples. We have over a dozen, I've been doing podcasts, as you know, um, up next for patient safety podcasts, looking at all the different ways we could be so much better and talking to the experts who have the technology now that is used in other industries that could be repurposed for healthcare. So that's, that's a real passion. I think you have to try, we have to look at what we don't have that other industries have. Because if you look at the trajectory for safety and other high-risk industries compared to ours, it's shocking. We, we are literally on a downward slope and the others are all on a dramatically upward slope. So we have to get better at this. And that's with everyone like me who's easily distracted behind the wheel of a car on the Pennsylvania Turnpike in a snowstorm. We are still keeping people safer. So, I, and not to mention now the 18-wheel um, semis that are going to be barreling down the pike. They probably are now without a driver. Yeah. They're able to not only navigate with all their sensors and monitors and all the data they collect and use, we could be doing a lot more of that in healthcare that would enable our workforce to do what they do well. So I'm excited about those two frontiers. One, the just the research and think tank aspects of an NTSB, but also at a regional level, let's start activating the resources we have, whether it's clinical research. By the way, some of the best solutions I've seen recently involve fields as different as engineering, matched with genomics, with predictive analytics, and literally detecting throughout a hospital an unusual um, virus and, and going right to the source, which is, you know, genomics sort of lets you do that. Who are the people throughout the hospital that are infected and what do they have in common? And you go right to the source and fix it. And I've disturbed almost nobody at the front line. So I get excited about that. Yeah, your excitement and passion is, is infectious. I love it. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, good catch. Thank you. Uh, so you mentioned your podcast. I'm really glad you did. Up next for patient safety. What has that experience been like for you? Well, it's interesting. Um, we do a number of fellowships. You do know I love to mentor. So we do fellowships. We have three to four every year of different fellowships, bringing in mostly graduate students and health professions. But, you know, everyone's rediscovering the will. And they, the first meeting of any fellowship is a chance for them to ask me questions about my life, my career, just what you're doing. And one of the questions I always get asked, how can you keep going for 24 years working on medical error with no progress? And the answer is what I would answer you. I meet so many wonderful people along the way. And the podcast gave me an opportunity to not only take the people I know who are extraordinary, who've been working on this as long as I have, but also to interview people I've never met, but I've heard of like Jeff Cooper, who is the king of simulation centers and safety and anesthesiology. And so, you know, I'd never met Dr. Cooper. I was so excited. I got to 
have, you know, half an hour to just talk to this lion of um, safety who's accomplished in his specialty what, well, in the specialty of anesthesiology, what no other specialty has accomplished. So I think it's the people you meet, human beings that you meet along the way who bring not only extraordinary commitment, but great intellectual prowess, um, and it keeps you going. Yeah, the, the, my experience is very similar, uh, and I've not been at it that long yet, but um, it really is a lot of fun to connect with people. And uh, I think also just the, there's a collaboration element to it uh, that is hard to find in other ways. Um, and we need to wrap up, but before we do, I have a really, I have a question that I think is so important um, that a lot of, you know, working women would, uh, you know, could benefit from, which is how do you balance, you know, I know you have, um, you know, four children, uh, and, you know, as a working mother, you know, what were you able to, um, or what lessons are you able to share as far as, you know, how you balance that? Well, three kids, six grandchildren, um, and they all live, as you know, very close by. They're very much a part of my life. Just make peace with the fact you can't be everything all the time to everybody. Um, yeah, I've missed swim meets. They all have funny stories. I've missed swim meets. I've missed class plays. Um, I do my best. My youngest went off to college and her older brother took her, not her mom. She reminds me of that regularly. Uh, but the interesting thing is they all are just great. And you make peace, they're just fine. Um, I didn't have to be there making cookies. Um, they survived without my attending the class play or, um, oh, the worst. My kids were um, track, but the longer distance runs. I mean, what do I want to do? I say goodbye to them, they take off, and then, you know what? an hour or two later, they come back, you know, sort of like, <laughs> I'm not sure this is how I want to spend my weekend. Um, the kids turn out just great. You, you can, I mean, I'm not saying you can have it all because you can't be everywhere and do a great job at everything, but you certainly can balance work with family if you don't wind up whipping yourself because you haven't met some ideal um, incarnation of a mom or dad, you know, where, we're, we're doing our best, and mostly it works out just fine. That's great. It, it's uh, what I heard you say is, yeah, don't uh, don't overthink it. That balance is important, and uh, everything works out. You know, I think one of the things that uh, lately has been on my mind is you know the power of intention, right? If my intent is good, good things happen. Um, and, and so I, I really like what you had to say there. Um, so where can people find you, Karen? What's the best way to, to reach you? Well, there's um, sort of conceptual and um, actual. So conceptual is I'm very transactional. So if you have something you want to partner in, we can put our agendas alongside each other. We could move a worthy cause forward. That is the best way conceptually to connect with me. You know, I've never joined book club. I mean, I'm sort of... Um, I'm very practical about how I use time, but in just the most concrete terms, um, email is the best, feinstein at jhf.org. Um, 
text, not so good. I try not to clog up text. And my phone doesn't ring from one day to the next. So you can try calling, but you know, it's so unusual to hear a phone ring yeah. <laughs> not answer it. <laughs> it's amazing how the world has changed, right? Because it's the same thing with me. I used to spend so much time on the phone and uh, it's all electronic now, text and email and uh, direct messaging, things like that. My husband keeps saying, why don't the kids ever answer my phone calls? I said, because they don't answer phone calls anymore. Try yeah. texting. But the phone doesn't ring. LinkedIn works, sort of. Mm -hmm. And then there is a Twitter account, but the uh, chief communication officer <laughs> answers that if you think you're talking to me, you're not. I'm not going to tweet. I'm not going on Facebook. Um, I got tired of looking at my first cousin's baby every week of the baby's life. So, you know, your, your best um, LinkedIn works and the email works. Great, great. Well, Karen, thank you so much. It's such an honor to have you uh, join me today um, and take time out of your busy schedule and, and share um, all these great experiences with us and, and your passions and aspirations. Um, thank you so much. I look forward to staying in touch. I do too. Thanks, David. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.